In the words of Francis of Assisi, when he met Brother Dominic on the road to Umbria, good morning. <laughs> I'll, sit, I'll, sit, I'll sit down now. Um, I've been given the topic of Advent to preach on this morning. Advent from the Latin adventus simply means coming or arrival. Today, I'm going to talk about the coming of Jesus Christ in human space and human time, the incarnation. If anyone is tired of going through John's gospel this semester, then don't worry, we're going to change things up. We're going to look at 1 John instead. 1 John chapter 1. Um, just a little story before we start. Last year, uh, my friend Ebby Bamboy, some of you will know, who's actually a model and an actor in St. Andrews, he, um, he was in a fashion show called Don't Walk, which is what a uh, princess... Kate was in, um, I believe, and uh, I went along, and as you can tell, I don't normally go to fashion shows, but I went along, and it was, a, it was quite a strange experience. Shy was there as well. We were completely out of our depth, and um, yeah, just like all these people wearing hardly anything or wearing all this fur came by, and I was looking, and I was like, this is ridiculous, and then the next day, I found myself in um, Ebony and I's flat in the bathroom. I locked the door, and I took off my clothes, <laughs> and I looked in the mirror, and I was just really upset, because I don't have the six-pack that Ebby and his model friends have. <laughs> and honestly, it sounds like a joke, but I was actually quite upset, and I thought, you know what, I'm not good enough. And here's the point. I was living according to a narrative in which looking good is really important. Having a six-pack or an eight-pack, in some people's cases, is important. <laughs> this morning, we're going to remind ourselves of the narrative of the gospel, the narrative that says that Jesus Christ came down to this earth, took on flesh and blood, so that we might have eternal life. As Kieran Cressy is going to come read um, the passage to us, it's 1 John chapter 1 uh, from the English standardized version. Um, and as Kieran reads, let's be thinking about what these 10 verses are saying about Jesus Christ's coming, but also what this means for us in response. Kieran. Cool, so 1 John. <clears throat> that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Thanks, mate. In my first year at university, I was having dinner with some Christian friends. Eating quiche and drinking schlur, 
A few of them were chatting about the creation, a few of them were chatting about the creation of the world. And they were agreeing with one another that the world was created in six literal 24-hour days. Um, and then they turned to me and said, Joel, what do you think? I said, well, I may be wrong, and I respect you guys, you may be right, but I just think based on the word yom in Hebrew for day, and based on what I understand of the, the intention of the author of Genesis, I just think maybe it didn't happen in six literal 24-hour days, but I may be wrong. And then one of these friends looked at me straight in the eyes, gazing into the depths of my soul, and asked, Joel, do you not believe in a personal God? Ladies and gentlemen, this morning I do believe in a personal God, but this belief is not primarily based on the exact how of God creating the world. I believe in a personal God because I believe quite simply in Jesus Christ. This morning, this passage is about this coming of Jesus Christ in flesh and blood and what this means for us as his followers. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to walk through um, the 10 verses uh, with a PowerPoint that I've put together, and then uh, going to draw a couple of points from that quite quickly, and then we're going to take communion together. So we're going to move on to verse 1, please, David. So verse 1, John starts his proclamation it starts his letter with a proclamation about the coming of Jesus. He is the one who was from the beginning, who was there at the creation of the world, who is the divine Logos, as we saw in the Gospel of John. This same Jesus, co-eternal with the Father, creator and sustainer of humankind, would come to this earth so that ordinary, bog-standard human beings like me and like you would hear him, see him with their own eyes, touch him, with their own hands, experience God himself. In Mark 5, when the woman who had suffered with a hemorrhage for 12 years touched Jesus' clothes and was healed, she was touching the one who is from the beginning of time, God incarnate. In Luke 9, when the disciples saw Jesus feed over 5,000 people with a child's packed lunch, they were seeing with their own eyes the one from the beginning of time, God incarnate. In John 11, when Mary and some other Jews saw Jesus weeping when his friend Lazarus had died, they were looking upon the one from the beginning of time, God incarnate. And then in Matthew 28, when the disciples heard Jesus say that he would be with them, we would be with us for the end, to the end of the age, they were hearing the words of the one from the beginning of time, God incarnate. Philip Yancey puts it like this, the God who created matter took shape within it, as an artist might become a spot on a painting or a playwright, a character within his own play. If we want to move on to verse 2, please, David. Here John is explaining more about what this life is like, i.e. the life of Jesus. Again, we get a statement about the godness, the divinity of Jesus. He is the eternal life. He is the eternal life who is with the Father, but he is also the eternal life that has been revealed to us in, in flesh and in blood. As Christians, we don't worship a remote God who is way up there, but we worship a God who knows what it is to walk this earth, this earth to feel joy, to feel pain, to be human. God knows us. There's a story that Brennan Manning tells about an old Hasidic rabbi in the Ukraine. And this rabbi said that he learned the meaning of love from a drunken peasant. 
One day, this rabbi went for a walk to a tavern. Um, this tavern was owned by his friend. And he walked into this tavern, and then he saw two peasants sat at a table, drunk out of their minds with their arms wrapped around each other. And each, each peasant was telling the other peasant that he loved him. They loved each other. I love you, I love you, I love you. And then one of the friends, Ivan, his name was, turned to his friend Peter and said, Peter, tell me what hurts me. Peter replied, how do I know what hurts you? Ivan responded straight away, if you don't know what hurts me, how can you say you love me? In these first verses, John is telling us that God knows us. He knows what it is to be human. He knows what it is to be rejected. He knows what it is to suffer, even suffer death on a cross. So when we have prayer ministry in a bit, let's pray for one another in confidence that God really knows us. God really knows what's going on with us this morning. Also, see how John uses life as a title for Jesus here. In John's gospel, he never uses life in this way. Why is this important? In so closely relating life with the one who reveals life, Jesus, John shows us the importance of having a faith that takes in the full humanity of Jesus. David Rensberger, um, New Testament scholar, puts it like this. The divine life was revealed in a visible and tangible person who was witnessed. And this revelation itself is embodied in the message that has been handed on since that beginning. So often, as Christians, we focus on the death of Jesus solely. But John is telling us here that if we're going to understand and accept Jesus Christ, then we have to understand and accept his whole life. Verse 3, please, David. Here's a fun fact. This is the only place in the entire Bible that there is application of koinonia, fellowship language, to God. And this fellowship with God is linked to having fellowship with John and with those with him, to other Christians. This shows us the importance of community for John. To believe in God for John is not to believe in God in isolation. It is not to read your Bible by yourself in your room all day and avoid church because church contains annoying human beings, though that's true. <laughs> to be in fellowship with God means to be in fellowship with other believers. And this doesn't just mean being in fellowship with those who hold the exact same theological and, dare I say it, political views as us, but with all those who have received the life that is Jesus Christ. As Christians, we are in fellowship with God, and the pronoun there is we, not I. I'm afraid this morning we're in this together. I want to move on to verse 4, please, David. I've been finding verse 4 particularly challenging um, as I've been preparing for this. Note, John does not here say that here he's writing these things so his audience's joy may be complete. Of course he's writing for their good, for them to enjoy fellowship with God. But he also says that he himself will receive joy if they receive this message, they receive this good news. Scott Haifman, New Testament professor here at St. Andrews, calls this the Christian selfishness of love. He explains that this is simply getting happy when someone else gets happy. Now, I don't know about you, but I sometimes struggle to get happy when someone else gets happy, when someone else finds joy in the gospel. Excuse me. I, um, I lead a home group with Hannah Warnock sat there. Um, and a few weeks ago, she was leading a short Bible study on Philippians. 
And honestly, it was fantastic. She was getting the group to see the Bible as the living word of God. It was inspiring. And as I was sat there next to her, was I happy seeing my friend have such joy and such passion? Maybe a little bit. Also, part of me was just gutted inside. How can this person, how can she receive this joy from God? Why aren't I speaking to the group in such a way right now? Just yesterday, actually, I haven't written this down, but just yesterday, uh, I got this um, message on Facebook from this old friend we used to lead a camp together, and he said um, to a load of us, he said, yeah, I was, it was my 21st birthday a couple of days ago, and I was praying on my 21st birthday that I would see someone, see one of my friends come to know Jesus. And then that day, I led one of my friends to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And everyone else in this group is like, that's fantastic, that's fantastic. And my initial reaction was, oh, what an arrogant so-and-so. <laughs> <laughs> and, then my, and then my second thought was, was God, why didn't I get that birthday present? This isn't fair. Isn't this ridiculous? I want to feel joy that my friends are enjoying fellowship with God and sharing this fellowship with others. John here is challenging us in verse 4 to be joyful when others experience fellowship with God, to be happy when others get happy. Next verse, please. Um, We now move into the second part of the passage. We've seen that God has become incarnate in Jesus Christ and that we can have fellowship with God because of that life, the life of Jesus. In the remainder of the chapter, we see the results of this life in the lives of believers in us. We see what our response should be to the incarnation. And this response is grounded here in the fact that God is light and there is no darkness in him. This is important to remember as we get to the bit about what we should do. If we don't understand the goodness of God, then we won't understand properly how we are called to live for God. Let me move on to the next verse, please. Verses 6 and 7 are about what it means to have fellowship with God. Here in verse 6, John is describing those people who claim that they have an intimacy or a closeness with God whilst living in a way that is opposed to God's character, walking in darkness. Note, John is not here saying that we lie if we do anything wrong, but he is just challenging us to be honest when we do wrong. There'll be some of us this morning who know there's stuff in our lives that isn't right, stuff that's harmful to ourselves and harmful to others, stuff that constitutes living, uh, walking in darkness. If that applies to you, of course, we'd love to pray for you later. We are called to perfection, yes, but we're not going to be perfect. When we pray for one another, we are mediating for a God who is perfect. For we believe that this perfect God wants to move in our lives, whether we are walking in light right now or we are walking in darkness. God's light triumphs over the darkness on the cosmic scale, but also in our individual lives. Let's be honest with our imperfection this morning in the presence of our perfect God. Verse 7, please. So how do we have this fellowship? We do it by walking in the light as he is in the light. John is challenging us to be holy, to live in the same light as God. And how do we live like God? We follow the example of Jesus Christ, who, as we hear proclaimed in John's gospel, is the light of the world. The way we live, the good things we do, it has to all be rooted in God 
and in the example we have through Jesus Christ. Now John says here that if we walk in the light, then the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Wait a minute. I thought God only forgives us and purifies us when we confess our sins, when we admit that we're screwed up and utterly helpless without him. Is John saying here that we receive salvation through doing good things? I don't think that's what's going on. Two points. First, the good life that we live is specifically grounded in God and his character. Second, I think John has bigger expectations than we do about the transforming message of Christmas, i.e. what it means that Jesus came to this earth. My default expectation in life tends to be that I'll screw up. I'll sin all the time and once in a while I'll say, oh God, um, can you forgive me? Oh, thanks God for forgiving me. I appreciate it. On the other hand, John's default expectation is that because of the transforming power of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we will live holy lives rooted and grounded in the personal God we see through Jesus. Professor of church history and friend of this church, Jason Varner, compares this with going to a daunting job interview and getting to provide the interviewers with someone else's much better CV. And this is with integrity. This person's credentials, this person's life has rightfully become our own. We get to benefit from his CV. So often when we're faced with challenges, we look at our sad little CVs and we think, yeah, I have no prayer. I have no self-control. I have no love for my neighbor. But because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, we get to look down at a CV that has everything we need and more to get the job, to walk in light as he is in the light. As we'll see in verse 9, this doesn't mean that John thinks we're perfect. We're still in need of forgiveness. But let's not limit our understanding of the person and work of Jesus to a quick fix remedy that we apply when we inevitably do bad things. Instead, let's look to the person and work of Jesus to pursue our call to live holy lives in accordance with the character of the one true God. Verse 8, please. A couple of years ago, I was having coffee with a friend Um, not in St. Andrews, and we were chatting about prayer, and I was saying how difficult I find it to pray. I said, mate, if this gospel thing is true, then it really changes everything. We believe in a living God, and yet I hardly acknowledge God in my life. I see prayer as a chore. I see reading my Bible as a chore. I get bored in church services. God's so amazing, and so why do I hardly pray to this amazing God? Do you struggle with prayer, mate? I asked. My friend, same age as me, looked at me and said, with no hint of irony, yeah, it's not really an issue for me. The thing is, I just find that I'm praying all the time. What, really? I said. Yeah, I just find that whatever I'm doing, I'm also praying, even if that's subconsciously. (laughs) Now, perhaps my friend really does pray all the time, consciously or subconsciously. I can't rule it out. But here we see again John wants us to be honest about our weaknesses and our failures. If we say we don't sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We want to be a community of believers who have the truth within us. But this is only possible if we are honest about our brokenness. Let's not, as Brennan Manning writes, apply spiritual makeup before we approach 
God. In other words, let's not hide things from God and from one another. To be in fellowship with God and with one another entails an honesty about our weaknesses. This morning, there'll be stuff we're hiding from God, stuff of which we are ashamed. Let's not deceive ourselves this morning. Move on to verse 9, please. Just a quick one here. We saw in verse 7 that the default expectation is that we live holy lives. But John knows that we're going to get it wrong sometimes. And when we do, as we saw in verse 8, let's not deceive ourselves. But here's the good news in verse 9. When we confess our sins, we have a God who, out of his faithfulness and his justice, out of who he is, out of his character, wants to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, please. I do this thing sometimes where I buy a big bag of crisps to eat for a mid-afternoon snack. And then I sit and I eat the bag of crisps until I feel sick. Since I've had a girlfriend, however, this process has become more difficult. (laughs) So as not to embarrass her, let's call her Lizzie. (laughs) So I'm sat eating my crisps happily. Then Lizzie says, stop eating those crisps. You won't want to eat your dinner. (laughs) I ignore her comment and continue to eat the crisps. She says again, you're having Nando's in two hours' time. Stop eating those crisps. You won't enjoy your dinner. I understand her point. After all, I do like Nando's. But then I carry on. These crisps are good. Then a third time, she says, Joel, stop eating those crisps. You're having Nando's in two hours' time, and you're going to want to eat dessert. You won't enjoy your dinner. At this point, I realize she's right. I do want to enjoy my five wings and unlimited frozen yogurt. (laughs) I put the crisps down. In verse 6, John tells us that if we walk in darkness but say we have fellowship with God, then we lie and we do not practice the truth. In verse 8, John tells us that if we say we have no sin, then we lie and the truth is not in us. And in verse 10... John tells us, if we say that we have not sinned, then we make God a liar and his word is not in us. God is not a liar. If we make out to him, to others or to ourselves that our thoughts, words and deeds are all above board, i.e. that we do not sin, then we're actually saying that God is a liar. Let's not do that this morning. Three times here, John tells us that we need to be honest and admit our sin, admit our brokenness, our weakness. Are we ready this morning to put the bag of crisps down? Uh, Next slide, please. So a couple of main points before we take communion. First, there is not just a movement from God towards humans in this passage. John also describes a movement from humans to God. In verses 1 to 4, we see the first movement. Jesus Christ, who we see, 
hear, and touch, who came so that we might have fellowship with God and with one another. Then in verses 5 to 10, we see the second movement. We are called to live holy lives, living in honest recognition of our mistakes and our need for forgiveness, but also living with a greater expectation of what's possible for us as a result of Jesus' coming. So the good news of Christmas is not just that Jesus humbled himself and walked this earth before his sacrificial death, resurrection, and ascension. Yes, that is the main thing, and let's keep that the main thing. But the good news of Christmas is also that we get to walk in the light as a result of this incarnation, walk in fellowship with God and with one another. The second point, the coming of Jesus means that we are known and we are forgiven. If any of you know my girlfriend Lizzie, then you'll know that she is way too good for me. Indeed, some of you in this room have said that she is out of my league. <laughs> a few weeks ago, my friend Andrew, sat at the back over there, was ill, like really ill. And he sent me a message in the middle of the night, um, Saturday night, pleading with me to bring him some Powerade to, as he put it, replenish his electrolytes. <laughs> I received the message and replied, yes, mate, of course, I'll be right over. I then fell back asleep. (laughs) By the time I'd woken up, Lizzie had not only attended to the needs of my friend Andrew, she had also bought me coffee out of my league. Another time I went out to play football, even though I was injured. Lizzie had told me before, don't play football, you'll only make it worse. She's very wise. (laughs) I turned up at her house three hours later, having sprained my ankle. Now, she had the right to say, I told you so, you're an idiot. I don't know why I choose to be with you. But you know what she did? She welcomed me into her home. She gave me a bag of peas to ice my ankle. And then she made me fish cakes. (laughs) You see, Lizzie knows me pretty well. She sees me when I'm on top of the world, when I'm down in the dumps. She puts up with me in whatever state I'm in. The thing is, Lizzie is not God. (laughs) 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 I'll take one thing away from this morning, just Lizzie is not God. God knows us far more intimately than any human ever will, and yet chooses to offer fellowship to us. In Psalm 139, the psalmist writes that God knows how many hairs there are on our heads, that he is acquainted with all our ways, that he even knows what we're going to say before we say it. And God doesn't know all this from a deck chair in heaven. God knows all this because he loves us so much that he would send his only son to become flesh and blood, to know what it is to be human, to suffer and die on a Roman cross. God knows us. And this same God offers us fellowship with him. This same God accepts us in our weakness. This same God forgives us our sins. In Romans 5.8, Paul writes that whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is in the midst of our weakness, our brokenness, and our failure that Christ dies for us. 
God knows us in our weakness and chooses to forgive us and offer us the fellowship that comes through the sacrificial death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. As we say here in the vineyard, come as you are, but don't stay as you are. As Brennan Manning writes, I am loved as I am, not as I should be. This morning, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, whatever state we're in. Um, next slide, please. So we're going to take communion now. And this is a sign of the fellowship that John talks about in this passage. By taking the bread and the wine, we are choosing again to accept the offer of fellowship with God and with one another. Let me read from the account of the Last Supper in Matthew's Gospel. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus invites all of the disciples to take the bread and wine, all. And this all includes Judas. Just before this invitation, Jesus predicts that Judas will betray him. That very night, Judas does betray him. Jesus invites him nonetheless. This all includes Peter. Just after this invitation, Jesus predicts that Peter will deny him three times. That very night, Peter does deny him three times. Jesus invites him nonetheless. As New Testament scholar John Nolan puts it, it is Jesus, as about to be betrayed, abandoned, and struck down, who gives what is to be achieved by his dying to precisely those whose loyalty is about to fail. This morning, wherever we are with God, whether we are walking in light or walking in darkness, Jesus invites us nonetheless. Jesus, the one who knows us, is inviting us to fellowship with God and with each other. If you want to stand up, then we'll pray. Lord God, we thank you for the incarnation. We thank you for the life made manifest. We thank you that you know us and you love us and want to forgive us our sins in whatever state we're in. Would you come now and move by the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you take us deeper into fellowship with you and with one another? Oh, come, let us adore you, Lord Jesus, now. Amen.